This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Welcome to our part two of our top favorite reads of 2021. I am Trevor, as long as Paul. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> doing well. I'm waiting for, you know, the wind beneath my wings, Paul, or something like that. <laughs> Ooh, now you're, now, now it's not just uh, conjunctions. You're, you're looking for like, um, song cues and maybe right. movie quotes and things like that okay oh okay. we plan on doing this for a long time so i just figure over time we gotta get it yeah yeah i hear you <laughs> well we were back uh, we are back last week we did our part uh, one of this episode which was covering our top reads of 2022 or sorry which covered our top reads of 2021 numbers 10 through 6 and today it's our top five paul this should be yeah. fun moment of truth <laughs> And I think, you know, I don't have a whole lot of introductory stuff because, you know, maybe some listeners will just be listening to part one and doesn't just start part two. So yeah. I thought we might just begin yeah. with uh, some more of our listener uh, feedback. We've got quite a few of this episode and I will share a couple that I got from Instagram. This first one is from Donald E. Levy and he recommended Passing by Nella Larson a book uh, published in 1929. I've been seeing a lot about this book, Paul. Uh, he says the book blew him away. And it first founded on David Bowie's list of his 100 books. And it's been getting um, a lot of uh, republications this year, but maybe maybe also getting into the public consciousness because of Rebecca Hall's uh, adaptation, which is out on Netflix right now. Um, yeah. It looks beautiful. It's in black and white. I haven't seen it yet, but it's one of these that I want to you know, kind of collect some of these films up for the end of the year. And it's definitely on my list of got to get to it over the holidays. Yeah, I agree. And that book, I've heard a lot about it over the years, but to be honest, I didn't even really know what it was about until just recently. So Mm. I I want to check that out for sure. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Uh, The next one from Literarianism on Instagram also has a new Netflix adaptation, um, but I don't think that this would have been seen yet because when we got this entry... It was before the adaptation was released on Netflix, but it's The Power of the Dog by Thomas Savage, 1967. And Literarianism said, I have read nothing like it. And this one is just out by uh, uh, Jane Campion in a, in a new film adaptation with uh, like Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst. And I actually have watched this one because I love Jane Campion. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll just I'll just say... Yeah, that's it's quite quite the thing. <laughs> yeah, I I added that one to my wish list. The book after getting this recommendation, I looked it up because I hadn't heard about it or or wasn't familiar with it. And yeah, that one does sound fascinating. This brings up the point: we'll have to do an episode sometime on film adaptations of some mm-hmm. of our favorite books, and maybe our practice with film adaptations in general. Like, do you feel I need to watch the the movie when it comes out, and you know, I'll read the book someday, or do you think I should read the book? Make sure I have that all taken care of, and then I'll watch the film someday. Mm-hmm. But I guess I guess we'll leave listeners in suspense. I don't know your answer either. Yeah, I, I don't want to spoil I, it. I think exciting. I've spoiled my answer since. I- <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, um, all right, we got a couple more here, Paul. There's a few more here. Yeah. So our next one comes from our good friend Rohan Mateson. She says, "For me, I think it would have to be Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, 1985, a novel that just keeps giving its readers more and more and more." until you can hardly remember a time when you weren't deep in its world. So 
no need to say it, but I am all on board with that one. <laughs> one of my favorite books ever, and I know you love it too. Fitting that you uh, landed on this one. <laughs> That's right. You know, for sure. Must have been fate. <laughs> um, and then another one from our other good friend, Naguib Metawar. And he says, this was more difficult than I thought, but if I absolutely have to choose one, I'll go with Nabokov's The Real Life of Sebastian Knight for the story, the style, and the sentences slash images that have stayed with me. For example, in the very tense last chapter, the narrator, who has spent the night on a train, tired and stressed, looks out the window at dawn. Quote, a road drew out and glided for a minute along the train, and just before it turned away, a man on a bicycle wobbled among snow and slush and puddles. Where was he going? Who was he? Nobody will ever know. Unquote. He says, even if this fleeting image had nothing to do with the plot, I'm still thinking about the man on the bicycle. I heart Nabokov. <laughs> I love that. That's one I haven't read of his, but that... Yeah, me either. I, yeah, I need to. Um, and then this next one is from Arminati, uh, who's on Twitter and Instagram as Arminati. He says, my pick is, and I'm not sure I'm going to say this right, but Biobu? <laughs> B-Y-O-B-U. Biobu. By Ida Vitali. Uh, translated by Sean Manning and published by Charcoal Press. Uh, it is a book of poetry written in prose and very unique. I'm intrigued by that one. Um, have you got that one in your collection? No, I don't have that one. But as I've probably said before, I love Charcoal Press. My wife got me one of their bundles last year for Christmas. And they're just such a fascinating publisher. So they're another mm-hmm. one of those that's quickly adding to the list of, you know, one of those publishers or <laughs> anything they come out with I'm interested in. So that one yeah, sounds great. All right, why don't you round us out here with the, uh, another one before we go on to ours. All right, so our last one for now is from Nisi Panetta. She says, I was moved by Yu Miri's Tokyo Yuno Station, translated by Morgan Giles. It's that rare novel centered on a poor working man whose life, quote, glows beyond its end as the novel arrives at a tragic and visionary conclusion that co- encompasses Japan's history. So that's another one that sounds really good to me. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot, of, again, a, a lot of these are things that have been, you know, in the air, mm-hmm. but I haven't sat down and really dug into them yet to know, to know that much about them. So it's nice to have this opportunity to revisit things that I might otherwise miss. And then in years be like, oh, did I remember, have I ever heard of that book? I think so. <laughs> yeah. I love having this list because I'm going to go through it afterwards and just kind of actually add some of them to my list so they don't slip away. <laughs> All right, Paul. Let's let's do a couple of our own now, and then we'll get back to some more listeners. But Sounds here's good. your top five. What is your number five uh, read of the year? So I originally had Benjamin Labatut's book slotted here because I loved it so <laughs> much. But you covered it so well last in our last episode. Uh, I gave you an thinking, opportunity to cheat. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll always take that opportunity. Uh, yeah, no. So I started thinking of you know what other books I could add to my list because I had so many, like I mentioned. So. You know, I was trying to continue my theme of touching on books that we hadn't discussed very much on this podcast so far. Mm-hmm. But then something else you said in our last episode, along with a comment that we're going to read here in a minute from Dorian Stuber, made me change my mind. So in part one, you mentioned you know that some of your decisions for these lists were made not just based on the books themselves, but also on some you know special reading experiences or mm-hmm. really special memories from the year. And so then I'm going to spoil a little bit of Dorian's comment, but I won't spoil much of it. He says um, something or when he submitted his choice, he s- said, when I looked back at my list, this was the one that gave me the most pleasure. And so, you know, that those two comments got me thinking. And that's why I decided to once more mention Olivia Manning. Um, I know I've talked about her a ton this year, but 
I am going to cheat a little bit. I read both the Balkan trilogy and the Levant trilogy. And I just got to thinking if, you know, if I'm thinking of books that gave me the most pleasure this year and books that I had a great experience that I'm going to remember for years and years, these are the ones that I had to add to the list. You know, I had so much fun with doing my first ever kind of Twitter reading groups with these that helped me connect, connect with so many new readers. And, you know, it was just so fun to see they were sharing all these cool historical pictures that tied into what we were reading and, you know, sharing their own comments and insights into the books. So, you know, when I think about books that just gave me the most pleasure in 2021, there's no way I could leave these off my list. Um, so I'm not going to say much more because I've, you know, <laughs> mentioned them many times, but if there's anybody out there who still hasn't picked them up, you know, just, you should do it. it they're so much fun and they're, and they're so well-written and yeah, so th- they have a solid spot here on my list. Well, I think that's awesome. And that's not just one cheat. You cheated in <laughs> slotting it in and then you you just selected six books for your number five. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't notice that. I've been so good up until uh, this point. I think that's awesome. I will never be able to outdo that. <laughs> I don't think. We'll see. We'll see one of these days. Yeah. But I, I fully support and endorse okay. both the, the cheat and also the, the selection. Whew, I'm glad. All right. My number five is a sequel that came out this year. It is uh, Pat Barker's The Women of Troy. I loved The Silence of the Girls that came out a few years ago. It was Pat Barker's uh, writing of the Iliad from the perspective of Briseis, who is the kind of concubine of Achilles, who was a Trojan princess. You know, I, I studied the Iliad and the Odyssey and, you know, Greek stuff <laughs> all through college. Loved it. And always kind of thought of Briseis as just a side, very, very minor side character, even though for all intents and purposes, she is the instigation of the Iliad and the conflict that's going on there between Achilles and Agamemnon. So to have that book from her perspective was really special. And I think Pat Parker's an amazing writer. And then uh, I didn't even know this was on the horizon. And I saw that it was coming, The Women of Troy earlier this year. And Doubleday sent me a review copy. And I don't even know what I was reading, but I know that I stopped it right that moment yeah. and dove right into The Women of Troy. And I probably didn't, you know, probably didn't uh, impact me quite as much as The Silence of the Girls, but I still, again, thinking of reading experiences, I got it in early April and I just remember reading it through throughout that month. I took it on a holiday with us and would stay up late reading The Women of Troy because I love these characters I always have and to get mm-hmm. uh, another perspective on them. And one that I think is respectful of the the time period, you know, I'm all for things being updated and, and I probably, I maybe even have mentioned it on the podcast before some of these rewrites of, uh, you know, Greek tragedies or Greek uh, poetry or whatever tend to input our political um, issues on top of these old worlds, which I think is fine, but it can also be a little bit jarring and a little bit I think misleading as to what these people were maybe thinking of. Not that I'm like any professional or anything, <laughs> but I thought the women of Troy did a fantastic job. These both, both of these books do a really good job of taking these women in the world that they are in and seeing their lives from that perspective. Um, so really enjoyed Pat Barker's books and uh, the women of Troy is definitely one that I would recommend people check out. Yeah, that's great. I've had Regeneration for years and years. I've never <laughs> read it. I really need to to dig into Pat Barker a little more. One quick question. When you read some of these retellings, 
does it ever inspire you to go back and reread the originals or have you done any of that yet? I have. I I did it back. I mean, I do it quite often. Yeah. These books, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, and then just some of the plays around that time Mm -hmm. are things that I kind of keep in regular circulation. Yeah. And so I really like it when a book comes out that lets me go back and read those, maybe thinking of their world a little bit differently. Yeah, that's great. That's something else that probably could have been on my 2022 list because that's I I would like to revisit some of those, especially the Odyssey and the Iliad pretty soon. So, yeah, well, that's a great pick. Um, So I'll jump over to my number four, which is uh, Gertz and Meyer by David Mm -hmm. Albahari, translated from the Serbian by Ellen Elias Bursac. And the version I have came out from Dalkey Archive. So this is another book on my list that was recommended to me by Mark Haber. So it's the second one of his recommendations this year that made it into my top 10. So I'll just put in a little plug. If anybody isn't following Mark, I strongly recommend that they change that quickly. He's just a constant source of these outstanding recommendations, you know, and just another great example of how important booksellers and, and Twitter friends with great taste are. So I really appreciate it. Um, but he, when he sent me an email recommending this book, he described it to me as an unbroken paragraph about a professor ruminating on the suffering of his ancestors during the Holocaust, intense beautifully translated, and I think an absolute masterpiece. And boy, I I guess I have to say I agree. Uh, This one came out in 2005. And so I'll just give a really quick summary. Basically, like Mark said, it's there's an unnamed narrator of the novel, and he's a teacher who's living roughly in the present day. This was written in 2005. And he's trying to find out more about his family who were killed in a concentration camp back in 1942. Mm And so, you know, during the course of his research, he starts to uncover a bunch of different documents and historical information. And then he comes across the names of these drivers of a truck in which his family was probably killed. And their name is, names are Gertz and Meyer. So they're these hmm. SS officers. And I guess apparently back in Serbia at this time, one of the ways that they would kill, you know, people in these concentration camps is they would drive around in a truck loaded with Jewish people. And the exhaust pipe was connected to an airtight compartment at the back, which, you know, would slowly just gas these people. So as the book goes along, the narrator, as he's doing this research, becomes kind of increasingly obsessed with what happened. And he starts to become really obsessed with these two drivers in particular. And the the obsession is really interesting. It starts to kind of get reflected in a convoluted way that the story is being told. I forgot to mention it's all one paragraph. So that kept with my, <laughs> my theme this year of getting rid of those paragraph breaks. But um. Yeah, that lends itself to this very like, it's almost like a fever dream at times or he's just kind of like becoming more and more obsessed and, and the language starts to shift a little bit. But he doesn't have a lot of information about Gertz and Meyer. So he begins to basically imagine what they might have been like. And so he he makes up stories about how maybe one of them used to like chocolate or this other one really liked to read. And he peppers throughout the book, like he'll say Gertz or Meyer or Gertz or perhaps it was Meyer. So he starts to like put in this, doubt about it kind of like these subtle reminders that a lot of this is speculation or he'll say things like as the document tells us or more likely this happened you know and so it's just a really interesting narrative style um so as the book goes along little things like this mixed with kind of the fictional lives of these two men creates this really strange tension between these very serious and real events that happened but also this weird obsessive imagination that he's digging into so I'll just give a couple of quick examples. At one point, the narrator, he's imagining the moment where they're basically dumping all the bodies out of the truck after, you know, they've gotten back from one of their trips. And he says, what were Gertz and Meyer up to at this point? I expect they were chatting with the camp commander. 
One of them was certainly smoking, and there was the business of crawling under the truck and reattaching the exhaust pipe. Little by little, the day would pass. There was always something to do. So it's just, you know, this really kind of, I don't even know how to explain it. It's very bizarre, but it's, it becomes like a, almost like a, a dream because he continues these repetitive actions of saying like Gertz or was it Meyer? And like, you know, it's just this really interesting, it's almost like a poem at times. And then at one point, partway through the novel, he says Gertz or Meyer as if it mattered. And so that's Mm -hmm. where it really kind of like shakes you out like, oh, this, you know, this is truly just him speculating. So I'll just close out this part with a really good review I saw on Words Without Borders. And it says, Gertz and Meyer takes the Holocaust as its subject, but it's also a lesson in telling stories about the lost past. As the witnesses to that era of European history die off, they leave Al-Bahari's generation, he was born in 1948, to make sense of what could easily be considered humanity's darkest days. Al-Bahari is often compared to the late German writer W.G. Sebald. Both present both present eccentric characters trying to reconcile themselves with the past, characters where eccentricity gives way to obsession, which gives way to madness. The narrator of Gertz and Meyer resembles the nameless narrator of Sebald's Emigrants. Both are on an impossible quest to unearth the past. Sebald and Al-Bahari also share a taste for the acerbic, the idiosyncratic, and the darkly humorous. So mm-hmm. I read a lot of fascinating books this year, you know, The Loser by Thomas Bernhard, who Al-Bahari says is his favorite author, you know, Krasnohorkai, who shares his aversion to paragraph breaks. <laughs> so there's a lot of books that could have been on this list, but some of them, you know, I feel like this one is just not mentioned very often. And so I wanted to make sure, cause it is just a stunning book, obviously very dark material, but boy, if you haven't heard of it or you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. I think Mark's description of it as a masterpiece is, is it very accurate. So that was my number four. Oh, that's great. I, so I, I've heard you kind of chat a little bit about it mm-hmm. and that's why I'm glad for the podcast because I will hear you like, oh, I loved Gertz and Meyer on Twitter. And maybe you'll say a few sentences and that's great. A lot of times that's all it takes to get a book in my hands. For whatever reason, I never did pick this one up though, but your description of it, I was already, I was already in, and then you mentioned Zabald and I'm so, yeah, yeah that, exactly. that, that, that seals the deal for me, but that mm-hmm. sounds amazing. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels. And I know that our friend Stuart McAbney is also a big mm. fan of this as well. So yeah, it comes comes highly recommended from quite a few people. So oh, good old Stuart too. Good old Stuart. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, my number four is one that I brought up on the podcast earlier in the year when I was reading it. And it is Barbara Pym's Excellent Women from uh, 1952. Yes. I just loved this. And I remember now, so thinking of reading experiences and kind of reflecting on the year, uh, one of my sons, my oldest, had a surgery for his chest, which is really scary for me. Uh, for years, we knew he was going to have to have it for years, but they were waiting until he was the right age and just the right time. And I was really, really nervous. And, and I went and stayed in the hospital with him. Everything went just perfectly, by the way. Just, yeah, you know, I'm so happy. He, he was, he, he recovered very quickly. He, you know, it was awful to see him in pain. But I had this book with me during that time, too. And I just remember reading it in the hospital room while he would sleep. And very different feelings. I mean, Excellent Women is not about anything like that. But it just it's just one of those books that, you know, was there with me. And that I was loving reading at the time that uh, could have been terribly difficult. But now I can look back on it and be grateful that he's okay. And also grateful that I had this book to read. <laughs> yeah, I love that. 
But this is about a, a woman named Mildred. She is a, a single, you know, getting older. She kind of feels like she's missed her chance to be married. And the excellent women in the novel are other unmarried women who are just always there for people. You know, they're excellent women, just there for the church, there for the community, there for the, all of their married friends to come and um, complain to about their married lives. And it's a, an interesting part that uh, one particular friend uh, comes to talk in, about, you know, another friend's uh, troubled marriage, another single friend, another excellent woman is what I'm talking about here, comes and is talking to Mildred and says that they've had a lucky escape. And Mildred, who's telling the story, says, a lucky escape, I thought sadly. But would we have escaped, any of us, if we had been given the opportunity to do otherwise? There's just this sadness, this realization that, yeah, that life looks, you know, kind of miserable at times. I still am super lonely. And would love to have that kind of um, that kind of miserable life, uh, in in a way. <laughs> and she she's talking a lot about this um, state of not being uh, married and being there for other people and there to to make sure that <clears throat> other people feel feel secure and feel loved. I mean, it, it's it's a great story throughout for many reasons. And yeah, the married couples do not do not recommend uh, marriage <laughs> to right. us, you know, to readers. Um, uh, but they, they still have something that Mildred doesn't and that Mildred would like and recognizes that, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a shame that she can't have these passionate, turbulent uh, feelings as well, that mm. it's not, not for her. Uh, so I'm excited to keep reading Barbara Pym. I know that Mildred comes up maybe as a, very minor side character, maybe even just as a, as a cameo almost in later books, but uh, very excited to keep going with her because this was just an, a, a wonderful, wonderful read this year. Yeah, I'm thrilled. As you know, I'm a huge Barbara Pym fan. I, I love that book. Um, and Quartet in Autumn, which I mentioned mm-hmm. already, could have easily been on my top 10 list, but I, I cheated on that one by not uh, doing any rereads. But yeah, I'm so happy <laughs> that you're, you know, starting to share that same passion for Barbara Pym. She's just yeah. amazing. So Yeah, I always thought that I would. I mean, I, she's someone that I could put on like my list of favorite authors mm-hmm. without even having read her, just from what other people said and my my feelings about what it must be like. Now, sometimes, of course, things don't pan out that way, right. but uh, this time it is. I, yeah. I am confirming, yes, indeed, <laughs> she is a favorite author of mine. <laughs> That's great. I love it. So uh, on to number three. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my third choice is uh, Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. Um, as I was making my list, I realized that this choice actually has a lot in common with my previous book in some ways. It's you know touching on the fallibility of memory, um, and it involves people that are looking back on the past and basically trying to piece together what happened, often with some of these horrific or violent events, and learn more about all the different people who were involved. So. You know, I haven't read a ton of Faulkner yet, but like some of his other some of his other novels, this one um, is similar to maybe like As I Lay Dying or The Sound and the Fury, where it features a whole host of various narrators telling their interpretations of a of an event. And so, you know, while I was doing some reading about this book and its influence, there was a lot of references to how it kind of mirrors the South in the United States. You know, the strong cultural ideas where the past is such a big part of the present day. And it kind of gets retold in stories over and over again and kind of shifts over time and things like that. So, you know, it's a very Southern book. It's a multi-generational story that, you know, describes the rise and fall of this man named Thomas Sutpin. 
So he's born into poverty and then he moves to Mississippi and he's basically searching for money and power and just trying to make his mark on the world. So when he does that, though, it sets in motion this whole series of really tragic events that kind of start to ripple out across a bunch of different families and then it spreads over into different generations as well. So, you know, the fascinating thing, like other Faulkner's, is the way this story is told, which is entirely through flashbacks. So a lot of these flashbacks are um, narrated by this young man named Quentin Compson, and he's talking to his roommate at Harvard, and they're just, he's telling these stories that he's heard his whole life, and then they're both like adding their own interpretations and different things to them. The narrative jumps around in time between all these different perspectives, and so the story ends up kind of unfolding in pieces. There's not really any chronological order to it. And so it's really interesting. Um, I saw it described as a peeling back the onion story. So each time, you know, you'll jump around and you'll hear it from different people's perspectives. And each time you'll pick up one little clue or one more piece about what happened and you're not sure what's true and what's not. So it makes for a very fascinating reading experience. Um, I came across an interview with Faulkner and he was asked about the way he created the novel. And I thought his answer was fascinating. So I'll just read that real briefly. He says, I think that no one individual can look at truth. It blinds you. You look at it and you see one phase of it. Someone else looks at it and sees a slightly awry phase of it. But taken all together, the truth is in what they saw, though nobody saw the truth intact. So these are true as far as Miss Rosa and Quentin saw it. Quentin's father saw what he believed was truth. That was all he saw. But the old man was himself a little too big for people, no greater in stature than Quentin and Miss Rosa and Mr. Compson to see all at once. It would have taken probably a wiser or more tolerant or more sensitive or more thoughtful person to see him as he was. It was 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. But the truth, I would like to think, comes out that when the reader has read all these 13 different ways of looking at the blackbird, the reader has his own 14th image of that blackbird, which I would like to think is the truth. Huh. So I, like I just thought that. that was, yeah, I did too. It was very, a very Southern description <laughs> in some ways. and But it, like that whole idea of just, you're getting all these different versions and the version that you get at the end involves all those versions, but it's its, it's own thing, you know, so... Yeah, so I just wanted to um, highlight that one because it was just a stunning book. I mean, it's in 2009, there was a panel of judges who ranked it as, let's see, the best Southern novel of all time. Hmm. And so, you know, I don't know. It's I would like to continue to read some other Faulkner and dig into him further, but I figured I would kind of go for this one because I knew it was so highly acclaimed and I can absolutely see why. It was, it was stunning. You know, one of my favorite places in the world, as I've mentioned, is Faulkner Books down in new Orleans. And so it's just interesting when you start to learn more and more about a person and see where they wrote some of their novels and stuff like that. I could really see myself digging more and more into some of his stuff soon. So yeah, anyway, it's a really cool book. It's been a long time since I read any Faulkner and I haven't read Absalom, Absalom. Yeah. I'm afraid to say, but, but yeah, I, I don't know why it's, he's kind of one of those authors that I've read a few of them. And I really liked each one of them that I read. And for whatever reason, don't feel... It almost feels like, well, I'm now done with college. Why would I keep reading Faulkner? Yeah. And that's just a dumb way to look at it. You know, no, for, my, know for, for me, like I, mm-hmm. I did that phase of my life. Now I should move on. And he seems almost so academic now that... I don't need to go back and read him, but that's not why he wrote these books. It's not right. why they were published. They weren't published just for college, um, you know, students to grapple with. Mm-hmm. And yet for some reason, I think that's my 
you know, been my perspective, yeah. but I no, would I like to get back to it. That's the danger of some of these books that are taught at an early age. On the one hand, it's obviously a good thing because you're exposing mm-hmm. people to these, you know, masterpieces, but there is sometimes, like you said, that, that backlash or that unintended consequence of, it feels like work. And I mean, to be fair, they, they can be work. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> tough going at times, but then as you dig into them, you realize, man, what an influence he's had on so many of these other authors that we talk about, just the way he tells stories, the way that, you know, he will sometimes have these long rambling sentences or all these other things that you start to see in these more modern books. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was really fascinating to revisit him. I'm glad I did. Well, and, and honestly, the, one of my most memorable reading experiences of all time was reading as I lay dying. I was back at college between Christmas and New Year's. Like I'd gone, I didn't live too far away from home. So I went back to college to my apartment and it was like a Saturday and I had nothing else to do. So in the early morning, I started reading that book and I finished it that day. I did it all in one, in one thing where I'd like stop to get some food or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And I, I, I loved it. But again, for whatever reason, it didn't make me think, oh, now I want to do that again with Absalom Absalom or something like that. It was, it was, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll try and figure out why, you know, maybe a little better why I've not returned to Faulkner, but you definitely have made me uh, realize that that's an oversight on my part. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds like a great experience. And in the way he writes, I could see something like As I Lie Dying, if you could read it in basically one reading mm-hmm. or at least in a big chunk, that's a great way to do it. Cause just the way that the narrative works and everything just to be yeah. immersed in that. Yeah. Would be it completely washed over me and I was immersed mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think you're going to approve of my number three. Okay. Not that I, not, not that I feel like you've disapproved of any of them. No, but, so uh, far I'm loving everything. <laughs> um, this one is Susanna Clark's Piranesi <sighs> that came out yes. last year in 2020. <laughs> I, I still reread um, many parts of this book. I read um, earlier this week, I read the first part, you know, where it's just talking about Piranesi and kind of introducing you to the world and, you know, the, the 14 people who have ever lived on the world and all that, you know, I read that to my wife and I just, I had, I love this book. I love her, her skills as a writer to help you ease into this thing with this exceptionally pleasant um, narrator that is curious and seems so smart. And yet clearly there's some things missing (laughs) there and the suggestion of all that. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful book. It won the the, the Women's Prize uh, this year. Uh, I think well-deserved. And I don't have a whole lot more to say about it because it's one of these books that, honestly, I, I think you kind of have to just experience it yourself. Uh, otherwise, for fear of it, uh, one, because I think that's just the best way to do it. But also, uh, there's nothing I want to spoil in this book. I went yeah. into it not knowing anything and was completely lost for like two paragraphs. Like, how am I ever going to get my bearings in this crazy world? And with this person talking to me about statues and and rooms and hallways and, you know, uh, different directions and floors. And then all of a sudden it 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 feels doable and it feels like I'm there in a way that I just I just loved, loved, mm. loved, loved. Yeah, no, that makes me so happy. I, as you know, I'm I love Susanna Clark so much, and I think I talked a little bit before about how any time an author you love that much comes out with a new book, there's always a, a mix yeah. of of excitement and wariness. And um, 
man, this one just not only did it not disappoint, but it just blew me away. So I'm so happy to hear you liked it. And yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about rereading little snippets of it, that might be a good one to reread over, you know, mm-hmm. the next month or so, just when I have the little, because I've been reading a lot of really big, chunky classics as reflected in some of the books on my list. But that one was just such a nice escape, but not in like a frivolous way at all. It's oh, still yeah. really like, there's a lot of depth and, and power to it. But yeah, that's... She's so, so delicate mm-hmm. it, with the way that she writes. There's, it does feel like an escape. And yet there's so much happening. It's not plot, it's not plot pushing, but she manages to get it in there while she's get, helping us get to know Piranesi and, and what's going on and all of that. It's just, she is, this is, an exceptionally well-written book. I mean, I just think the language is so um, delicate again. Yeah, I agree. I forget. Did you say when we mentioned this before that you're tempted to try Jonathan Strange again one of these days too? Oh, try it again? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I really enjoyed I love that mm-hmm. book. I shouldn't um, say try it again. I guess read it again. <clears throat> it. Yeah, I, I, I loved it and uh, would like to get back to it again because we watched the miniseries a few years ago and mm-hmm. that's even kind of far enough in my past that it, yeah. Rereading the book would be, in many ways, uh, reuniting with something that I remember-ish, you know, a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> so. I've read Jonathan Strange twice, but I still, it's been long enough, and it's such a, a complicated book that I feel mm. like I could go back, and I'm sure I would discover tons of new things. And so, so rich, so mm-hmm. rich. I guess that's the other part. She is able to present these worlds in ways that are immersive, but don't feel overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, there, maybe maybe if you if you hold Jonathan Strange in your hand, it can feel overwhelming. But once you right. get in there, it just really just slips right down. <laughs> yeah, it does. I I mentioned before. I think she took like ten years to write Jonathan Strange, and in it shows in just the attention to detail and the depth. And I I don't know. I haven't looked to see how long it took her to write Piranesi, but it may not have been ten years. But I wouldn't be surprised if it took her quite a long time because she's just mm-hmm. so masterful, and it shows the quality for sure. Yeah, I'm glad this book got the recognition it did. Hopefully yeah. it'll encourage her to do it again. Maybe in maybe in twenty thirty we'll come back and exactly. be talking about her new one. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Hopefully sooner, but I would be happy to. <laughs> so let's stop for a second. We'll get to our numbers uh two and one here in a minute, but let's let's finish out our listener um suggestions. And the first one here is from a Twitter uh, user named Books and Arts, which I, I didn't know I don't know who's behind this uh account. Uh it's someone that I just met at when they made this uh, suggestion to me and I've been following them really enjoy it to post a lot of bookish memes, mm-hmm. which may sound like, Oh, that's annoying. No, uh, it's so delightful. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I really like it, yeah, um, me too. but this is the recommendation there. The reading list by Sarah Nisha Adams. This is one of the best books I've read this year. I loved this heartwarming, inspiring story about books and libraries and how they connect, heal, illuminate and enlighten. I laughed and cried and was so deeply moved. Um, I would love to hear more. You know, of course we just said, Hey, send us a few brief pair or, you know, sentences and it's Twitter. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a lot of room anyway, but yeah, this, this sounds like one that we should both uh, maybe look into as a thing about libraries. We're yeah. going to do a library episode someday. Maybe this should be on our preparatory reading for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds really good. I, I definitely plan to do a little more research on that one for sure. Um, So our next one came in from Gavin Wolcher. He says, my title for best book read in 2021 is Gentleman Overboard by Herbert Clyde Lewis. 
a forgotten classic recently rescued by Boiler House Press about a man experiencing an existential crisis only to fall overboard while on a cruise ship, landing him in another existential crisis, a disquieting little masterpiece. This is another one of those great ones where I had not even heard about this one before. Mm-hmm. So I Me love either. all these new ones on my radar. Well, and, and speaking of so- someone who has introduced me to a lot of books this year, just mm-hmm. by his posting, Gavin is a librarian. Well, there we go. That's the, we didn't like plan this with this list, oh. but the librarian and um, he has kids about our age, our kids age. And he, I didn't know him until this year. Uh, and so it's been wonderful to get to know Gavin a little bit better on Twitter. And thanks for all the great recommendations. And yeah, he was kind nice. enough to actually send you and I both a whole list of recommended mm-hmm. books for our kids, which there was a lot of great ones on there. So yeah, we really well, appreciate it. Gavin, we're going to have to get you on here to go through some of this stuff with us. That would be an awesome, I think for me, a fun yeah. conversation That's with him. That's a great idea. <clears throat> all right. The next one is from Bonnie Renzi. It says, if I can only choose one... I'd have to go with To Serve Them All My Days by R.F. Delderfield. I swallowed it in one huge gulp, a very old-fashioned, sweeping epic that had me crying, laughing, and pulling my hair out in distress. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Did you get to that one yet, Paul? Did you I do didn't. That? It's sitting on my bedside <laughs> table. I, I put it there so I wouldn't forget about it. But yeah, maybe that'll be like a early 2022 book like I've talked about. But yeah, everybody I hear talk about it says similar things to this where it's mm-hmm. just... So good, so readable, you know, compelling, all these things. So, And sometimes a, a reminder like this, a friendly reminder from someone can make it so the book isn't so threatening on your nightstand. Mm-hmm. I mean, you put it there excited to read it, but I know sometimes after a week or two or a month or two, yeah. it can start to be like high pressure. Like every time, you know, some, uh, something's staring at you that you're neglecting. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. And a little yeah. comment like this can make it, not be that high pressure anymore and just bring back the excitement to read it. So I'm thinking right now that seems like it might be a good kind of January, February in the doldrums of winter kind of read. So we'll see how it goes. But our next one came from Anna Kotakis and it's four legged girl by Diane Seuss. She says, read it on the plane ride home from school on my way to have a really hard discussion with my family. It is perfect and otherworldly and hot and audacious, transportive, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Another one I don't know anything about, but it, I'm going to have to check that one out too. Well, and I, I do like, I, we didn't ask for this, but I like it when um, it's clear it wasn't just about the book, but about the experience around reading it Yeah, and how it can help you get through, you know, reading a book can help you just for first off, put an imprint on life a little bit and help mm-hmm. you remember things, but also help you through things. And so that that's a great one. I appreciate yeah. that. The next one we have is from Karen Jelenfi, and she has Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, definitely getting the rounds and, and impressing a lot of people. With his unique combination of lyrical and rigorous prose, Doerr digs deep into magic, history, and human struggle with a cast of characters that span centuries and continents. Are you interested in that one, Paul? I am. I read his previous book and I I liked Mm -hmm. it quite a bit, but I don't know. There's something about this one where I haven't quite committed yet. Was it me? Was it it me? It might have been you a little bit. I mean, I think there's been mixed reactions. A lot of people like Karen really loved it. Mm -hmm. And then I've heard some other people who are kind of lukewarm. And so, I mean, I'm not opposed to it. You know, that might actually be one of those I've said where sometimes if I'm unsure, I'll try an audio book. And so maybe that's what I'll do, but... Yeah, Karen's description, though, it just sure does make it sound appealing. I mean, there's nothing on there that doesn't sound great to me. Right. 
Yeah, and it's about uh, books and reading and libraries too. So again, I think you need to read it for our library episode preparation. <laughs> there you go. Oh, this episode is starting to sound like a lot of work. <laughs> All uh, right, you want to round sure us out here? Sure. So our last one is from our good friend, Dorian Stuber. He says, I had, I had to think hard about this one, gentlemen. Should I choose the theoretical text that left the biggest impression on me? He cheats. Hannah Arendt's <laughs> the, origin of, oh, the Origins of Totalitarianism. Or my favorite crime novel, Dolores Hitchens's Sleep with Slander. My most revelatory reread, Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence. Or maybe a favorite family saga, Hector Abad's The Farm. In the end, I had to go with the book that gave me the most immersive pleasure, the one I wanted to be reading all the time, equally delighted and alarmed by how quickly the pages were flying past. It also happens to be a family saga of sorts. Manet Mizumura's A True Novel, translated from the Japanese by Juliet Winters Carpenter. Loosely a retelling of Wuthering Heights, but don't worry if you haven't read Bronte yet. A True Novel offers both propulsive storytelling and compelling digressions on the nature of storytelling. Are writers supposed to tell about themselves or about others? What they know, the truth of their own perspective, or what they surmise, imagine, make up. Both smart and soapy, a true novel was the book I enjoyed reading most in 2021. Thanks, Dorian. That one, I kept seeing it pop up on his Twitter feed, and <laughs> yeah, I trust him, so I've definitely added that one to my list. It's a, it's a good one. And I yeah. don't know, I'm trying to see where my copy is here. Um if it's still sold in that nice box mm. with uh, two volumes, that's a ah. that's just a great way to read that one. It's a, it's one of my favorite books to have, and I I love I love that book too. It's been a long oh, time. Okay. I think I th- read it right when it came out, but mm-hmm. which I can't remember when that was. It feels like maybe even almost a decade ago mm. at this point. But yeah, you I, again, Paul. Got to read it. Preparation for our library yeah. episode. <laughs> oh boy, I better start now. I think I don't remember we'll make that episode being... at like next December. <laughs> I don't remember anything about libraries in it, but we'll just make that the, the default. <laughs> well, I wanted to thank Dorian too for letting me off the hook because as egregious as my cheating was, I think he went even further. So um, I don't know about that. I mean, he did mention books by other people, but he only mentioned like four. Uh, okay you, you slammed in six yeah that's true all right well i'll share the i'll share the shame then. <laughs> share 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 the uh the fun sharing yeah the fun. exactly <laughs> all right paul two more and all i right. i'm trying to think here i may know what yours are but i don't i don't know i don't know i'm anxious to see what's your number two yeah, i don't think either one of mine will be a huge surprise to you or to anybody else who's listened but you know the truth is the truth so number <laughs> two everybody's gonna t- get tired of me talking about this one but Don Quixote made it oh, nice. two on my list. Yeah. Um, you know, I've talked about how last year I started to tackle some of these really big, you know, Mount Rushmore type of books with Proust and Ulysses and some of these. And they ended up not only topping my yearly list last year, but really my type, my lifetime list. Hmm. Um, I loved them so much and I was really excited to kind of keep that momentum going this year. And so, as I've said, I kind of had earmarked um, Don Quixote to be the one for this year. And I'm happy to say... It's going to join those other ones on my nice. all-time list. It's just amazing. So it's always kind of tricky to talk about some of these books that are just so ubiquitous and revered, but I'm going to do my best with the help of maybe a couple of experts that I'll bring in. So, uh, you know, I saw a review from Harold Bloom who talks a lot about Don Quixote, um, and he was just talking about the influence and impact of the book. So I just wanted to quote from that real fast. He says, this great book contains within itself all the novels that have followed in its sublime wake. 
Like Shakespeare, Cervantes is inescapable for all writers who have come after him. Dickens and Flaubert, Joyce and Proust reflect the narrative procedures of Cervantes, and their glories of characterization mingle strains of Shakespeare and Cervantes. Don Quixote may not be scripture, but it so contains us that, as with Shakespeare, we cannot get out of we cannot get out of it to achieve perspectivism. We are inside the vast book, privileged to hear the superb conversations between the knight and his squire, Sancho Panza. Sometimes we are fused with Cervantes, but more often we are invisible wanderers who accompany the sublime pair in their adventures and debacles. I just thought that was <clears throat> not surprisingly a, a perfect way of putting it. So I just, you know, I keep saying how much I enjoyed reading this book and how much that kind of surprised me. I don't know if I thought it would be harder work or if I just didn't know what to expect, but uh, I don't know. I'm sure some of the credit goes to Edith Grossman for her amazing translation, but even outside of the language, it's just amazing how modern this book feels. I mean, 500 years old, um, often described as like the first modern novel, of course, but I was also amazed to see how postmodern it was in a lot of ways. It's the irony, the pastiche of like um, the chivalric romances that it does is so hilarious and just feels very modern. Um, as I was reading it, I kept thinking like, this could be like a Paul Auster novel, you know, how sometimes yeah. he'll like inject himself as a character or he'll step back and do some interesting things with the narrative. And Cervantes was doing that stuff 500 years ago. You know, he's creating false authors within the text and then stepping back outside of the text and like making these comments to the readers about this other author um, as if he's reporting on its creation. Or then during the second half of the book, he does this really interesting thing because it was two volumes that came out years apart. And he begins to reference how characters within the story read the first part of the book. And so they know Don Quixote. And, <laughs> and, and so then the characters within the book are like, well, when I read that first book, I saw that he did this. And so then they start playing tricks based on their knowledge from the first book. Stuff like that. Just amazing stuff in a novel that is that old. Um, and then something else I really enjoyed is just, you know, we find ourselves as we're following along these two characters where we're laughing at them because in so many ways they're ridiculous and we're poking fun at them. But then as you go along, you find yourself more and more also kind of admiring them and rooting for them. Um, there's just a couple of quick excerpts again that I wanted to read. Uh, Bloom says, we need to hold in mind as we read Don Quixote that we cannot condescend to the knight and Sancho since together they know more than we do, just as we never can catch up to the amazing speed of Hamlet's cognitions. Do we know exactly who we are? The more urgently we quest for our authentic selves, the more they tend to recede. The knight and Sancho, as the great work closes, know exactly who they are, not so much by their adventures as through their marvelous conversations, be they quarrels or exchange of insights. I just really liked that. That's something I noticed during the second half of the book is just you start to see like they are ridiculous, but they're also very true to themselves. And, and there's just this authenticity that's just so endearing and fascinating. It was such a kind of a, it sounds corny, but it was a privilege to kind of be a fly on the wall during their conversation. So I'm going to read just a couple of really quick quotes um, just because I want to give a little taste of how good this language is. Um, one of them is one of the most famous scenes, of course, with the windmills. Um, so Don Quixote says, destiny guides our fortunes more favorably than we could have expected. Look there, Sancho Panza, my friend, and see those 30 or so wild giants with whom I intend to do battle and kill each and all of them. <laughs> so with their stolen booty, we can begin to enrich ourselves. This is noble, righteous warfare, for it is wonderfully useful to God to have such an evil race wiped from the face of the earth. What giants? asked Sancho Panza. 
the ones you can see over there, answered his master, with the huge arms, some of which are very nearly two leagues long. Now look, your grace, said Sancho, what you see over there aren't giants, but windmills, and what seems to be arms are just their sails, that go around in the wind and turn the millstone. Obviously, replied Don Quixote, you don't know much about adventures. <laughs> just like some of the stuff, it's just like it could come out of like a buddy comedy or it could come out of something that, you know, it's just it's amazing how funny it is. And then this last one I just thought was captured another element of the book, with, which is just kind of the sincerity and the fun of it. So this is, again, Quixote. And he says, when life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. Too much sanity may be madness, and maddest of all, to see life as it is, and not as it should be. So I thought that was whew, nice. just so good. I mean, just I could have quoted a million different passages out of that book, but it, it blew me away. It probably could have been my number one book of the year. Um, anybody, there's been people on Twitter who <laughs> have seen that I've been reading it and have been asking, you know, what's it like? A little bit nervously, just like I was. <laughs> anybody who's on the fence, just go for it. It's it's everything that I thought it would be and, and more. Well, and I, I was, I don't think I ever asked you which translation you were reading, um, but yeah. you know, Edith Grossman is the best. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my mind, I think she is the best of the best of the best. And that's one of maybe one of the reasons I have, well, I can't put it all on this. My parents bought me a, a nice hardback edition of Don Quixote a long time ago and it's still here. It's not one that I've, you know, eventually culled away, but it's, you know, it's some old translation and I'm a little worried I won't be able to get through it. And then when Edith, when I saw that Edith Grossman had put one on, I was like, well, <laughs> I'm not reading anything else other than I that know. one. And I don't have it, but it's also this thing of, well, but I have this one, so I don't want to buy another, but not that that stopped me too much in the past, but I know. at any rate, I do it's... not know if I ever would have gotten to it or been tempted to get to it again until you started going through it and really enjoying it. That's yeah. encouraging. Yeah, I would definitely, I, I know what you mean about getting the duplicates of the books, but I, again, I haven't read the other ones, so I can't say how they stack up, but Grossman's translation is so modern and, and well done. And then her footnotes in there also are so helpful mm. with some of the historical context. And she starts to explain the gap between the two books and how there was another author that actually stepped in and wrote a sequel to Don Quixote during those years. And so then (laughs) to kick off the second book, Cervantes steps in and starts talking about this other author. And he's like, you may be expecting me to trash him, but actually, and like he goes off and like (laughs) starts talking about it. It's just, it's amazingly modern and so funny. And just all of her footnotes really add some depth there that I really appreciated as well. So yeah, I think it's worth investing in another copy. Sounds good. I do. I do. I've got a lot of plans. But, you know, as we often have happen here, uh, whatever one we end with is probably the one that I'll, you know, start my weekend with. So yeah. let's see how this goes. You may not want to say that until you hear what my number one choice is. <laughs> so my number two is one that I don't think will surprise surprise you either. I talked about it with so much pleasure already. Um, Anthony Trollope's The Warden, mm-hmm. 1855. Again, just thinking back on the book, the story, I, I would have loved this at any time of life, I think. Um, or at least should have. I guess I don't know how I would have received it in other times. but So it wasn't just this year, but it gave me so much joy and so much pleasure and so much just heart. You know, it was it was enriching. And 
and touching and sad. And I, I adored it. I thought it was one of the best books I've ever read, of course, and was so excited because now I've got a whole world in front of me with Anthony Trollope's work. And so the, the warden, again, I already talked about it. Uh, I think I was on our NYRB classics episode and read some quotes and talked a little bit more about it. But, you know, for people who don't know, it is about an, a gentleman, an older man with a, with a daughter and he has a pretty plush job. He is the warden or kind of the caretaker for an estate that is to the benefit of um, 12 older men, 12 um, men who are, you know, would otherwise be destitute. And it's based on some really old will, you know, 500 years ago, this will was set up, this estate was set up for the benefit of, of uh, these, um, these people. And, um, and then the warden, the caretaker, gets whatever's kind of left over. But over time, that has become exceptionally valuable, that property and the whatever's left over. So being the warden is in a really great position to be in. The wonderful thing about it, though, is that this man takes his job seriously. He does want to be there for these men. And he doesn't think about it until there are rumblings. You know, he's, he's not doing this just because it's a plush job. He's, like, honored to do it. And sure, it's great that it makes him, you know, a comfortable living. But people start to kind of rumble that this is not fair. This is not appropriate. You, you know, this was never the intention of the will. And it's his own struggles to come to terms with that and to realize, hey, I did never want to do this. And you've got the men who some of them are, you know, have been his friends for a long time. But some of them start to kind of turn their backs on him a little bit and realize, hey, this isn't this isn't fair. And then you have people in the community who both support him and don't support him. Some of them, you know, it, as of course it tends to be, the people with authority and power already are like, no, this is the legal way to do it. Right. You know, people in the church or in the in the in the community leadership. Uh, it's others who are saying, no, this just isn't right. And. I love his struggles with that and his compassion for the people, regardless of what side they're on and his stress that he never wanted to be the kind of person who it could be said of, he was a greedy man or mm-hmm. didn't do this out of love. And so it just, I, I loved it and, and can't wait to do more uh, Trollope because this was just f- fantastic. Yeah. Uh, every time you talk about it, I get more excited. I, I keep saying, my 2022 reads are going to involve that one, but I mean that that one for <laughs> sure is going to happen very soon. Um, I've been, as I mentioned before, I, I've been wanting to dig into Trollope for a long time, but I just never knew how mm-hmm. to approach it because he has so many books and all these different series, and I didn't understand how they all related to one another. So to have an entry point that makes uh, sense, not only yeah. that, but also that you've raved about, I'm very excited to do <clears> that one. So yeah, and that's wait. fairly short. Yeah, it's a short one true. for for him and for Victorian literature in general. <laughs> I know because another one of his, "The Way We Live Now," is another one. Some people have mentioned as a good entry point, and I do have that one, but it is not as short. So. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great choice. Okay, right. here here we you go, ready? Paul. Number right. number one. Number one for me, the Magic Mountain. I wondered. I wondered yeah. if it would. I was like, is it not even going to make his list? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, it's so funny. I mean, I was looking back, you know, like you do, I keep a list of all the books I've read over the year. And it's so fascinating at the end of a year to look back at all the different books you've read. Some of them, you read them a month ago and you don't really even remember them. And then there are other ones, you know, you read six months ago, nine months ago, whatever the case may be. 
that just immediately pop out. And uh, I read this back in, it was like May and June, I think. And I remember, it's funny, it's such a wintry book, but most of my memories about it are me sitting out in the backyard, laying on the hammock, <laughs> hot day, you know, the, the leaves are up above me and it's just nice and peaceful. Lawn mowers are going in the background or whatever. Um, but, oh man, it just made a huge impression on me. Um, so, you know, I talked about it a little bit before, but apparently this book was inspired when his, uh, Thomas Mann's wife ended up suffering from some type of a respiratory illness. And so she ended up going up into the Swiss Alps to stay at a sanatorium. And so while she was there, Mann kind of, you know, got to know the doctors and staff there and things like that. And so he started working on a smaller book at that time, but then I was reading and apparently then World War I broke out around that time and that impacted the way this book went and it became much more philosophical and, and darker in some ways. So, you know, the, the plot of the book is relatively straightforward. There's an author named Hans Kastorp and he's in his early twenties. Um, he's about to start a career in Hamburg as a shipbuilder, but before beginning work, he just takes this quick trip. He's going to go visit his cousin who has tuberculosis. His name is Joaquin and he's staying at a sanatorium up in the Swiss Alps. So, you know, Hans spends some time there, but he's just planning on being there. I think it's like for two weeks, but he slowly starts to get drawn into this really strange insular world of the sanatorium, um, the different patterns of the day and the rituals and the people. And he begins to not only observe those rituals, but he starts to actually um, subscribe and and act in them. So um, there's a review I saw in the guardian that just did a really nice job of summarizing this. It says ensconced in his lounge chair, miles away from the cut and thrust of life on the flatlands, Hans finds himself questioning long-held notions of honor and mortality. Up here, the snow is eternal, and time itself becomes slippery and can no longer be trusted to behave as one would expect. This is indeed another world of never-ending soup and ritualized, almost fetishized thermometer readings, of rest cures and lectures on love as a disease, of petty rivalries and giddy flirtations, where death is the elephant in every room and only ever happens behind the scenes. This gives the novel a lovely feeling of the sublime and the uncanny. Indeed, at times, it almost slips into the realms of the supernatural. And I was trying to think of how to summarize. Some of these books are so hard to really say anything intelligent about, so I cheated a little bit because I just thought that was such a good (laughs) review. But it's interesting because it has these elements. It's such a realistic book in some ways. It's just the story of this guy visiting his cousin. He ends up staying at the sanatorium, and it's just kind of almost like one of those like Hotel du Lac or one of those where it's almost like a hotel where people are just staying. There's guests coming in and out. There's rivalries, there's love affairs, but then ah, it's just so fascinating. All these other undertones of illness and death and time and, and all these things start to flow into it. that just add this whole other level. It gets hard to talk about because it's just so complicated. Um, and I think when I spoke about this in an earlier podcast, I was only partway through and I said, I have no idea where this is going to go. <laughs> and I finished the novel and obviously I know where it goes, but I feel better after having finished it because I think he was very intentionally subtle, you know, a little bit ambiguous. Um, I loved that ambiguity in the end. Uh, the fact I never really knew exactly how to think or feel about it. Um, I saw that he said something about, he. I guess basically he was well aware of how elusive the book was. Um, but he offered a few clues about ways to approach it. And so, you know, but he says he recommended that those who wish to understand it should read it twice. (laughs) And so I, there you you go. (laughs) I know that's the thing is like, it's crazy because I only read it six months ago, but already have the internet. 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know. he couldn't read the cliff notes. <laughs> no, but I mean, the funny thing is like we talked about Susan Bernofsky has a new translation mm-hmm. coming out and I'm already thinking like it's only been six months and I'm already like, when does that come out? Maybe I'll read it again next year. And just that says something about the power of this. You know how some books just haunt yeah. you? Um, this one, I just can't stop thinking about it and, and I don't even understand everything about it. And that's kind of what I enjoy. Oh, so anyway, awesome. I could go on and on and there's all kinds of quotes I had lined up to read, but I think I'm just going to leave it at that and just say, um, you know, it's just one of, it's of all the books I read this year. It's the one that I just find myself thinking about most often all these months later. That's, that's really cool. Do you, do you, do we have a publication date yet for Susan Bernofsky's translation? That I, not that I'm aware of. Okay. When I looked, I didn't see one. The only thing I found an interview and it just said, we're looking forward to your translation coming out in 2022. Um, oh, so maybe, maybe, so maybe. Uh, and I don't know, you know, sometimes those dates can shift obviously and everything, yeah. but that was what I saw. So I'm hoping that that's the case. I mean, particularly with something like translation of, of world-class, you know, Nobel prize winning <laughs> massive book. You want to, you want to make sure you've done, you've given it the time it needs to. Yeah. Just to like we were there, talking so. about with Susanna, Susanna Clark, like same for a translator. And I can't imagine mm-hmm. how intimidating we talk about, you know, the pressure on somebody for a second book or a third book that after there was an acclaimed book before it, I can't imagine the pressure of taking on something like the magic mountain or Don Quixote and trying to do justice to it. So yeah, if she ends up taking a couple more years, I'm sure that the results will be well worth it. Yeah. I'm excited. That's what I'm waiting for. I think I told you, um, uh, that's, I, I, I don't even have a copy of the magic mountain because I never had gotten one. But when, when you started reading this, I I looked and thought, no, I've got to wait. I've got to wait. (laughs) I think you're smart to wait. The crazy thing is like, you know, those everyman library editions Mm -hmm. that are so beautiful. They have another one. And I, I'm spacing on the name of the translator right now, but he, Oh, uh, John E. Woods. I've also heard that he did an excellent job transcribing it. And so that should tell you something about how crazy I am about this book is I'm actually thinking not only Bernofsky's, but I'm almost kind of eyeing, that nice. every man edition. This may be one of those where I end up having three or four different editions of the same book because I love it so much. So yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I think yeah. that's a really cool thing to have. And, and it's not like you have three different, you know, just different covers, which yeah, mm-hmm. I got that a, a few of mine, you know, <laughs> I do too. but you, you really have three different experiences almost yeah, with them. So. Exactly. All well, right. Moment well, of I'll, truth. I'll go with mine. And it also goes back to that, kind of part of the year as I read in April mm-hmm. about the time that we were setting up the podcast and it is Elizabeth von Arnhem's The Enchanted April. I'm late to the party. I know a lot of people have read this and loved it and so I just want to say yeah me too. <laughs> me too. I again just the the amount of joy that I got from this book like The Warden or Piranesi or even in its own way Excellent Women um, not so much the women of Troy. That was, uh, you know, a little bit more dour. But the amount mm-hmm. of just pure joy that I got from the Enchanted April just really set me up. It set me up to just look for. I mean, I was outside um, taking pictures of the flowers more. Uh, you know, going for more walks, just really enjoying. It. And just I've kind of felt that through the year, and I just loved this book. Again, for people who don't know what it's about. It starts with two women who don't know each other. They're both reading, you know, the newspaper in some shop. And one of them looks around and realizes that the the woman over, you know, kind of yonder 
seems to have gotten her eyes stuck on the same thing that uh, that startled our, our you know the, the person that we're following. Her name is Lottie Wilkins. And she goes and sits down um, by the other woman and says, she looked so kind. She looked so unhappy. Why couldn't two unhappy people refresh each other on their way through this dusty business of life by a little talk? Real, natural talk about what they felt, what they would have liked, what they still tried to hope. And so she she kind of enters into this conversation with uh, Rose is the other woman's name. So it's Lottie and Rose. And the ad that they're looking at is uh, to, to rent out a castle in Italy or, you know, in, in um, just this, this, this place where they can go and stay for a month in April. Mm-hmm. And I think this is like February or January, February when they're, when they meet up and it's very appealing to Rose, but also Rose, you know, both of them are, are um, married and both of them kind of want to get out. I think that that turns a lot of people away from the book in in some ways that they're like, oh, this is anti-marriage. These women are miserable and want to get out. And you can kind of see that there's a part where um, uh, Lottie is really trying to convince Rose to let's do this. We're going to do this. And uh, Rose, Mrs. Arbuthnot is her name at this point before kind of some of the formalities start to, to fall by the wayside, says the kindred points of heaven and home, continued Mrs. Arbuthnot who was used to finishing sentences, heaven is in our home. It isn't, said Mrs. Wilkins again, surprisingly. Mrs. Arbuthnot was taken aback. Then she said gently, oh, but it is. It is there if we choose, if we make it. I do choose, and I do make it, and it isn't, said Mrs. Wilkins. Then Mrs. Arbuthnot was silent, for she too sometimes had doubts about homes. She sat and looked uneasily at Mrs. Wilkins, feeling more and more the urgent need of getting her classified. If she could only classify Mrs. Wilkins, get her safely under her proper heading, she felt that she herself would regain her balance, which did seem very strangely to be slipping all to one side. Anyway, they do end up going, and their travel there is delightful. They 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 can't afford to do it all on their own, so they also get a few other people to apply to come with them, a few other uh, women. And they all go here to this castle for, for April. I love each of the women. Each of them have their own hang-ups. But the book is so joyful, and it is not anti-marriage or anti-relationships or just fly off on your own. These are women who, as uh, Lottie says there at the beginning, don't talk about what they want. Don't talk about how they feel because they're told how to feel. And so are their husbands to some extent. You know, yeah, they're the ones in the position of power, but they also are living out roles. And when they all start to be able to strip away those things and express who they are and be loved for who they are, uh, this book is just filled with just complete um, a joy. It, it's it's wonderful. I, I loved it. Loved the writing. Um, Elizabeth von Arnhem's style is so just forceful and fun. And she she pegs these people and their judgments really well. One of the women who comes on the trip is Mrs. Fisher, who is elderly, a widow. And she just can't really, you know, she just wanted to come and, um, you know, maybe have some quiet time. And she's a little bit embarrassed by the way some of these women are behaving. So Mrs. Fisher was upset. There were many things she disliked more than anything else, and one was when the elderly imagined they felt young and behaved accordingly. 
Of course, they only imagined it. They were only deceiving themselves. But how deplorable were the results? She herself had grown old as people should grow old, steadily and firmly. No interruptions, no belated afterglows and spasmodic returns. If, after all these years, she were now going to be diluted into some sort of unsuitable breaking out, how humiliating. <laughs> it's mm. just so... I mean, I I would sit and just read this and just giddy, you know, at the, at the writing and the fun and these characters that you do, you know, yeah, Mrs. Fisher's super judgy. She's also just so wonderful. She is a person and comes to life in many ways the way the other women do. Um, and, and again, the other men, too. Uh, it is beautiful, fun. I think it might become a, a yearly ritual for me in April to read this book because it just, again, set me up. I was, the spring was there in the air and it's kind of stayed throughout, you know. I'm even enjoying this 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 deluge of snow that we got over this last week. You know, it's a little bit winter wonderlandy right now. We'll right. see how I do in January, February <laughs> when it snows. But right now, I'm just like, isn't it wonderful? I can enjoy this right now. I'm going to be shoveling a lot and have a hurt back and it's cold and I'm going to be stressed as I drive around places, but it's just, you know, it's here. I can yeah. enjoy this. And in your imagination, you'll be in that medieval Italian castle <laughs> in the middle of April while you're shoveling snow, right? Uh, I should not do that to myself. Then I will start <laughs> to get miserable. <laughs> no, I'm, this, I love that pick. I remember you talking about this a little bit, but hearing more about it made me even more excited. I mean, I, I may join you in April because... It sounds lovely. It sounds exactly like my kind of book. I'm looking at the cover of the NYRB Classics version right now. It's gorgeous as always. So yeah, yeah I love that. It's I think really that's a vivid, a really vivid, almost garish cover. Mm -hmm. But it's 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 just got that beautiful um, April setting in the yeah. in the castle. Yeah, well, that's a great choice. I think that's a great way to to end off. I love it. Yeah. Well, Paul, so this episode's coming out on December 23rd. We hope people are having a great end of the year, great holiday season. We will be back in one week on December 30th with some reading intentions to, you know, looking forward to January, sorry, looking forward to 2022. And again, with things like this, it's it's easier for me to be excited and yeah. happy and and anticipate with the with a little bit of that childhood joy. Um the unexpected that's coming. Yeah, Hopefully it's good. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All these, all these books from readers, all these suggestions. I feel like my 2022 is already lining up to be another great reading year. So thank you so much, everybody. All right. Thanks, Paul. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.